As you turn to Hebrews 5, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if even God cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus. Ray Ortland, who's now the retired lead pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, would open their worship gatherings with that short invitation to set the tone for all those who were gathered that this is going to be a different experience from any other gathering of people anywhere else in that city. He adapted it from another well-known pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, at 10th Avenue Presbyterian in Philadelphia. And what's so beautiful is that it's an invitation not to the proud and the strong, not to those who are riding a wave of self-sufficiency and self-confidence, but those who are at the bottom. And it's an invitation to be welcomed by Jesus. As Ortland would go on to say, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. And we could continue. So let me read it again. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus. It's a great synopsis of the book of Hebrews. And it's timely for us today. The recipients of this letter had faced and were facing more hard times to identify with Jesus publicly. They were faced with uh, temptations that should we continue with him into more suffering and persecution? We today aren't faced with that same persecution, but we are living in strange and hard days. The weight, the stress, the anxieties of our day, the frustrations about situations we can't fix and we have little control over. Culture and society is changing at rapid paces and, and we're just caught bouncing around, bobbing around in the waves of it all. The uncertainty and lack of stability about things that we often assume would be more stable the grief of seemingly increasing strife and brokenness and animosity, plus our own daily battle with sins, sins that we've committed, sins committed against us. It's the seemingly daily battle with malaise, the, the blahs. It just feels like it's infecting every part of our culture. Where simple decisions in the past about things we normally do as Christians, now it's met with so much apathy. So much, eh, I don't know. And so to you struggling, to me struggling, to our city and region just struggling, we need Jesus like never before. And our passage today helps us to see even more why He is sufficient to help. Beginning in chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men, is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus as our high priest is a reality that's already been introduced to us in Hebrews most powerfully just last week. At the end of chapter 4 in the passage Joseph walks us through. It's a picture that we can understand because we have the Old Testament, but it's not as vivid to us as it would have been the original hearers of this letter who were Jewish, who became Christian and had thousands of years of practicing and experiencing the work of a high priest as part of their religious rituals and, and culture. We can understand it, and it helps us even more understand Jesus. As we've been saying throughout this book of Hebrews, when Hebrews keeps going back to the Old Testament, it's never in a negative the Old Testament was bad and wrong, followed Jesus who is right and good. It's never like that. It's always the Old Testament was intended for purposes then that no longer still exist because we have Jesus. It's incomplete. It was used by God to prepare his people for the ultimate and perfect that would come in Jesus. So they shouldn't go back into the Old Testament rituals and practices because... Now they have Jesus. One author wrote this, The purpose of the Old Testament realities like the high priest was intended by God to give us categories to help us understand Jesus. If you try to understand Jesus apart from the Old Testament, you might make him a coach, a therapist, a good example, a guru, a mentor, a trailblazer. But if you understand Jesus through the biblical categories God's provided, it widens and deepens our grasp of who he is. And in this passage, this will be the theme we keep coming back to. The high priest, Jesus is our great high priest, the better high priest. And it's going to continue through the next several chapters, as well as the source of our eternal salvation. Now, the high priest in the Old Testament described in the opening four verses of chapter 5. We see clearly the Old Testament office of high priest was not an office a man chose, but an office to which he was appointed to by God. For the purpose of representing the people before God as he offered sacrifices and offerings for the people to God. They were descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, from the tribe of Levi. The Levites, the high priests specifically, would serve for a period of time and would be the one person allowed into the innermost holy of holies to provide atonement for the sins of the people. You can read about it in Exodus 28 and 29, for example. Yet this person who served in this capacity was just a human being, also a sinner, and who would one day die, and that role would be passed on to the next high priest. So the sacrifices and atonement could continue. 
It was an imperfect system that was never intended to last forever. And the high priest himself knew that. He knew that he was a sinner who himself needed a mediator. The writer shows us this in verses 2 and 3. He, the high priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he is also clothed with weakness because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. And all of this was written out and developed in the Old Testament or religious ritual law. By the time of Jesus, the position of high priest had become more political than spiritual, more about power than about service. But even at its best, it was a sinner offering sacrifices for sinners. But someone who understood he couldn't become frustrated or aggravated by the sins of the people he was offering sacrifices for because, like them, he was also weak and prone to wander and stray. Now, this is a reference to the typical wandering and straying of God's people, God's sheep. This is not talking about outright rejection or or, or obstinance, hard-heartedness, hard-headedness. This is more the wanderings of the immature or when immaturity shows up in the mature. It happened throughout the Old Testament, and if we're honest this morning, it still happens in us. If we're honest this morning, we're a collection of the immature and the mature who still have immaturity that shows up from time to time. Far too often than we probably want to admit. Unless... We've become so self-righteous and arrogant, we think we've finally cracked the code and figured out how to live this Christian life on another level, and all you other losers out there need to figure out what we figured out and be like us, right? That's the only way you arrive, is if you define arriving in a way that just so happens to correspond with how you live your life, and everyone else who falls short of you catches your scorn and ridicule and shame. If you find yourself easily frustrated, aggravated at other believers who don't do what you do, I call this a Sunday night disease. When I pastored traditional churches, I would preach a sermon on Sunday night, and far too often had someone come up to me and say, you really should preach that on Sunday morning, which is their way of saying, I don't need to hear this. Those people need to hear that people who are not here on Sunday night and super religious like me. God, help us crush our religious pride and arrogance. Help us to see ourselves accurately at how weak and needy we are. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave this God I love. The high priest in the Old Testament, the people he offered sacrifices for, every single person in this room and city desperately need Jesus Christ. No one has arrived. Our great high priest who is a source of our eternal salvation, we need him. Now, interestingly, this passage doesn't get into the details of his sacrifice and death on the cross. That's going to be later in Hebrews. But the author begins here with what needs to come first, who he is. The sacrifice and work of Jesus is immensely important and significant. We're spending a lot of time there. But it's important and significant because of who Jesus was and is. He's not just this Jewish random rabbi from Nazareth who happened to die on the cross. 
He's much more than that. And the passage out, lays out four realities about who he is, beginning in verse 5. He was a son made a high priest, a son who was made an eternal priest, a son who was made a suffering priest, and lastly, a son who was a sufficient priest. So first, the son made a high priest. Verse 5 is interesting if you look at it. It says, in the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my high priest. In the context, that might be what you think it should say. But it says, but God who said to him, you are my son. This is no ordinary high priest because Jesus was and is the son of God. Prophesied in this quoted Psalm, Psalm 2, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, Psalm 2 is all about, the King of the earth, Jesus as the Son of God, the only begotten One from the Father, God descending and wrapping on flesh so that He could come and solve our greatest problem. It really should never cease to amaze us at the core of our faith is this reality that the one the greatest problem that we have is solved by the one that we've most offended. A problem that we cannot solve ourselves, yet we work like crazy every day to try and solve it ourselves. It's especially an amazing reality to those who tend to view God as an ogre, an unhappy deity just waiting to judge and destroy, who, who often think of God in that way because unfortunately some of God's people or people who claim to be God's people present God in that way. So, so yes, God is holy and set apart and just and righteous. And yes, we are hopelessly sinful. We're far more sinful than we even want to admit or realize. We see ourselves more like cute little puppies who do puppy things. and We're kind of mischievous, but you know, we're puppies. That's what puppies do. And we got to learn. We got to grow up and we got to mature. But in reality, we're more sinister and monstrous and wicked like an evil cat. Or use whatever animal analogy you want to use bunnies and rats, just whatever. We often view God as mean and harsh, and we view ourselves as we're, we're not that bad, we're pretty good. But the gap is far greater than we realize. God in his holiness and justice and righteousness, us and our putrid sinfulness is so great. So, so see that gap this morning. The only reason we're not immediately condemned for our sins the first moment we start willfully sinning is because as holy and just and righteous as God is, he's equally loving, gracious, and merciful and, and incredibly patient. And the only solution to this gap isn't anything we do ourselves, but what God in Christ Jesus alone could do for us. The Son of God took on flesh, came down from heaven to walk and live among us, and then represent us, not in offering an animal sacrifice for our sins, but offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And it wasn't just another priest in the line of Aaron, it was the Son of God made a high priest, appointed by God. This is your job. You've been given. Go and rescue and save my people through your own life, death, and sacrifice. It's incredible. Our greatest problem solved by the one we most greatly offended through our sins. 
A cool thing you can do as a parent, especially as your kids get a little older, they make a mistake, they mess up, they break something, it costs money to fix it. Certainly our kids need to feel the weight and consequences of their foolish and rebellious choices, yes. But as they get a little older, sometimes you surprise them. Yeah, you broke it. Yeah, it was your fault. I was foolish, I was rebellious, I was sinful. Yes, you have money to pay to fix it, but I'm going to fix it for you. I'm going to absorb the consequences of your foolish choices, this, the weight of your sins. I'm going to pay the price that you deserve to pay as a, as a demonstration to you of love, grace, and mercy. Because I, I want you at this age to learn that there's an even greater love, grace, and mercy that your Father in Heaven has for you. Because He paid the ultimate price for all of your wickedness and all your sins. And it blows their mind. They're like, what? Why would you do this? Because I love you. You're my daughter. And one day, probably a lot, my son. <laughs> Breaking a lot of stuff. Right now, it's just been daughters. That get it, understand it. For God so loved the world. How did he love the world? In this way that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And this son became our high priest. We cannot overstate how lavish God's mercy and love is. Secondly, Jesus is the eternal priest. One of the built-in imperfections of the priests who descended from Aaron is they kept dying. They kept having to get another one. But Jesus was not a priest in the line of Aaron. He was a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Now, if you don't have much Bible background, you might be like, who? If that's you, don't worry. You're not that far behind the rest of us because we're all kind of like, who? I'm just glad I pronounced it right, I think. This will be developed much more in chapter 7, so I'm not going to say much today, but Melchizedek appears exactly twice in the Old Testament. Genesis 14, he is the king of Salem, the precursor to Jerusalem. He's part of this big battle between four kings versus five kings. It sounds like it's from The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. Abram helps out, helps win the battle. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, blesses Abraham, or Abram at the time, and Abram gives back to the king a tenth, a tithe of all that he owned. And that's it. He disappears until Psalm 10, 110, which is quoted here in Hebrews 5, declaring the Messiah, Jesus, to be a priest forever in the order of not Aaron and the Levites, but Melchizedek. And the picture, big picture, simple understanding of this is, is, is this. Melchizedek was a character whose origins are unknown, whose story has no ending. He kind of comes out of nowhere and goes into nowhere. And Jesus is not a part of the earthly line of priest of Aaron, but part of this line of priest with no beginning or no ending, a priest forever, an eternal priest. And if we're basing our life and salvation now and forever on the work of a priest, wouldn't it be better to base it on the work of a priest who is eternal? Instead of a priest who's imperfect and eventually dies, to know his work has eternal implications and effect. Jesus is not only our greatest treasure, the well that never runs dry, the water that is so satisfying will never thirst again, that quenches the deepest thirst of our soul, the bread of life that not only sustains us but is sweet to eat like honey from a honeycomb. Jesus is the most beautiful and the most enjoyable and he lasts forever. 
He is inexhaustible. He never expires. He never stops. In a life where everything is exhaustible, where everything expires, where everything stops, where everything seems temporary, everything breaks, nothing lasts. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Dishwashers today are a joke. But what is this thing made out of? Tonka toys and Fisher Price things is, is weighs 10 pounds and doesn't do anything. This is the world we live in. So much of our life is temporary, but Jesus isn't. He is our greatest treasure and he is eternal. And we must be anchored to him more than anything else, or we will be blown around back and forth by the chaos of the temporary. We will lose our minds when we're anchored to that which dissipates into the breezes. Unless we are anchored to Jesus, our eternal foundation and rock. So he is the son of God. No one else is that. He is eternal. No one else is that. That alone would be enough. But it gets even better. Thirdly, he's the son who is the suffering priest. Verse 7. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, when we read this, some ways our minds are rightly drawn to Gethsemane when we consider Jesus offering prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. And certainly, we should at least think of Gethsemane. But most scholars and authors think this is appealing to more than just Gethsemane, but his entire experience in the flesh of humanity. And the prayer which God heard was to save him from death, which, of course, we know he experienced physically in the flesh, but he did not experience the second death, the ultimate death of the soul, even though he died under the wrath and condemnation of God for sin and should have. He didn't because he was God. He conquered sin, Satan, and death. Jesus in his flesh died. Jesus in his nature as God did not die because... God can't die. You can't kill him. He's God. He was, in fact, triumphant through death. And so the prayer he prayed was for that victory, and he was heard, and that prayer was answered. He won. He won. It actually happened. He conquered death. But he went through all of the anguish of one who stood before God as condemned for sins, not his sins. He bled Drops of tears from his head, an anguish so great we can't even imagine. It's incredible. Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection on three different occasions to his disciples. They never got it. Just right over their head. We, didn't, we don't understand that. He knew what was coming. Why he was going to face all that was so excruciatingly hard. So, so why did he have this emotional reaction to what he knows is the end of the story. Like, Jesus, can't you get some perspective? Like, you know, you know you're going to rise from the dead. You know you're going to win. Can we chase away your stinking thinking, Jesus, with some happy thoughts about victory and resurrection? Like, that's what he needs, right? Why, do he, why was he shedding drops of tears of blood from his, his head? And why was he in so much anguish over something he knew was to come? And guys, I, don't, I just don't think it's possible for us to really grasp the weight of what Jesus felt in that moment. We, this is where we're limited as humans. We can't feel what he felt because we're not Jesus. 
We can try with all kinds of analogies, you know, have you ever been accused of something where you know you're innocent, but you felt guilty and condemned, and you know you're really not? Like, we've all felt that, but we're really not innocent. We're not sinless. We're guilty of something. We've never felt the intimacy and connection with God our Father that Jesus felt for all of eternity until that moment where he had to drink down the cup of the wrath of his Father for our sins. So in this realm of stress and suffering and weight, we can't relate. Only Jesus walked that path. No one else. And we live in a day where we're exploring more the brokenness and the ways in which we've suffered and the ways in which we've been sinned against. And, and that's good in a way. We need to fully understand all the brokenness that leads to unhealthy behavior Absolutely. There's a lot of defense mechanisms and unhealthy things we do now because of how we have been sinned against in the past. That's great. But there is no person on the face of the earth who has suffered what Jesus suffered. Nobody has gone through what he went through. There's no one who has suffered a more unjust actions by humanity than Jesus did. And so while we need to understand the brokenness that is in us, we don't need to elevate it beyond something that Jesus can heal and Jesus can help with because he has suffered like nobody else. Verse 8 says, although he was the son, again, significance, that it was the son of God going through this. This is no small thing. Jesus wasn't a son who earned his way into God's favor through obedience. He was the son. Yet, he was ordained to learn obedience from what he suffered. Not learned obedience because at one time he was disobedient and had to learn how to obey like we do with our kids. That's not what this is talking about. It's like a, a few chapters earlier, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's not because at some point in the past, Jesus was a harsh and faithless high priest. That's not what the writer is trying to do with the language there. Jesus learned obedience in chapter 5, verse 8, by, not by moving from disobedience, but it's a way of emphasizing his humanity and suffering. He explored all there was to explore about obedience in the lab and crucible of suffering. Suffering that was made worse because of his obedience. In other words, in his 33 years of human experience, he fully explored all there was to explore in the crucible of obedience through suffering. He knows like no one else knows what it's like to be fully human in a way that he can relate to us like no one else to, can relate to us. You go through something hard, it's always beneficial to, to have somebody come to you and say, man, I've been through that too. Let's talk. And you connect to that person. You're like, yeah, man, that's so good. I'm glad you walked that path. No, you understand what I'm feeling, what I'm going through like nobody else. It's great to have you, brother or sister, to help me through that. But Jesus does that for everybody in every circumstance, in every situation, because no one understands the depths of that. He, he went to school and learned all there was to learn about what it was like to live in this broken human flesh, in this broken sinful world, in the crucible of obedience by remaining faithful, 
Jesus took no shortcuts and never took the easy way out of walking in our shoes. Just like in last week's passage, verse 15 of chapter 4, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He was more fully, he more fully understands us and is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way and never sinned. It's not that he was a superhero and had like spiritual Teflon and temptation just kind of bounced off of him. He took on every temptation and said no to every temptation to sin in the same power of the Holy Spirit that we have. Except he never failed. Never took one day off. Never, not one temptation snuck through that he didn't get rid of through the power of the Holy Spirit. He had to constantly stay on guard and fight every single second of every single day for his entire earthly ministry. Go one day without sinning. Just one day. What are you going to do? How are you going to do that? I'm going to lock myself in a room and get my Bible and just read and pray all day. Okay? You think that's going to work? How long will you last? I, you, I bet you won't make it an hour. Ten minutes. You're going to get so frustrated or mad or lazy or whatever and not love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. You're going to be, all right, I'm done. I can't do this. And Jesus did it all day, every day, every year that he was in his incarnational ministry. Like, we're so sinful, we relax and then justify sin. We literally will eat healthy six days a week. And on that seventh day, we have what's called a cheat day. Ah, I did good for six days. Today, I'm just going to let her rip. I'm not condemning cheat days. If you do that, great. But I'm glad we don't treat our marriages like that. Our jobs like that. It illustrates how silly and sinful we are. We resist and resist sin, and then we give in. Why? Because it's okay. We've been doing good enough for long enough. We check out because we've been checking in for so long. Man, I've, I've racked up enough good days. We stop trying because we want to reward ourselves for trying so long. We stop caring and embrace apathy because, well, it just doesn't seem to matter all that much right now. And the pressure to obey seems to relax. Maybe even we think crazy thoughts. Maybe God wants me to sin every now and then. So I can kind of restart everything. We are so silly, foolish, and sinful. And Jesus never did that. Never let up. He met the full brunt force of temptation for every sin. The pressure never lessened. It only increased until the end when he won. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame so that he could sit down at the right hand of his father in victory and then start interceding for us. No one suffered like Jesus in the crucible of temptation. No one is more innocent and more worthy of more worship who got less in this life than Jesus. Now, Again, church, remember the audience, followers of Jesus, tempted to do what? Quit. These are followers of Jesus who are tempted to quit trying, quit pursuing, quit, quit, quit persisting. And the writer is saying you have a high priest who not only endured far worse than anything you'll ever endure, but he doesn't stand over you and me shaking his head or shaming us with his finger. Look at you, you bunch of losers. Why can't you be more like me? That's not what he does. 
in our weakness and struggle, He is sympathizing. He's running to us to help us. We can endure because He endured. We can return because He's chasing us down to bring us back. Where are you most struggling with sin and temptation this morning, brother and sister? Where are you most feeling the weight of the brokenness of yourself or the brokenness of life in this world? Where are you looking at your heart and soul saying, this is where it's most impossible? This will never get better. That is never how Jesus sees us in our situation. He never looks at us and says, that's just the way it's going to be. That's as good as I can do with them. He never sees the impossible. He sees what He wants to accomplish. He not only sees this, but He flies to help us. To fill us with Himself and His strength. Come on, heart, love again. Come on, soul, hope again. Come on, body, obey again. Come on, mind, think and fight again. Come on, Jared, care again. And Jesus is helping I'm giving you all the grace and mercy you need right now to help. And, to, and today and right now, by His grace and mercy, you believe and you're, wor- you're able to worship Him. Maybe in a few minutes you're like, okay, I'm going to enjoy communion like I haven't in months and months. I'm going to sing like I haven't sung in weeks and weeks because Jesus and His love are filling me and I, I see it again. I believe it again. It's all good again. And then tomorrow you fight again because here comes the weakness and here comes the sin and here comes the, the blahs. That's why we need each other. Most of the time, we can probably gospel ourselves. But nobody can gospel themselves all the time. He is our high priest. He is the source, lastly, of our eternal salvation. He's a a sufficient priest. The Son of God is our high priest, an an eternal priest, a suffering priest, and lastly, a sufficient priest. Verse 9. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He is the source of our eternal salvation, our eternal life. Life is in him. I heard this years ago from Russell Moore. I've repeated it multiple times. You'll hear me say it until I'm dead. We all grew up in churches. Invitations were given. Come down this aisle and give your life to Jesus. Come down this aisle and give your life to Jesus. The reality is Jesus doesn't want your life. Your life is a mess. Your life is a dumpster fire. What he wants is he wants you to have his life. It's you to have his life in you, flowing through you. Who is this available today? Verse 9, all who obey him. I'm not going to even qualify this like we normally qualify these things to try to make sure we're not talking about work salvation. I think we all know we're not saved by works, by grace. But you don't get in on this unless you believe. And if you're not obeying, you're not believing. So just feel the weight of what the Bible resoundingly declares all through the pages of Scripture. If your life is not characterized by belief and obedience, the book of Hebrews is filled with warning passages. You should never, ever feel secure in a place of unbelief and disobedience. It's just kind of cozy right here, running from God turning my heart away from Him, not treasuring Him and loving Him. You should never feel that. We might not be His. We might just be religious. We might just be pretending. 
we might be deceived. But if by God's grace and God's spirit you're led by him to see him again as precious and beautiful and your heart is once again warmed by the fire of his love, grace, and mercy and you are reinvigorated once again on this path of obedience, then rest assured you are his. His eternal salvation is in you and his life is in you. I'm convinced that so much of our walk with Jesus is is the need of living with an awareness that his life, his presence, his power is always with us. And the, the bent of our enemy is to simply keep us distracted from that reality, to keep us apathetic about that reality, to keep us on cruise control, mindless and just careless, just going through the motions of our flesh. So church, once again, see Jesus as your high priest. The only one who is the son of God, who is the eternal priest, who, is, who suffered as he suffered and is sufficient to save. Believe again and be filled once again with his life and joy. And if you're not sure, if you're struggling, if you're thinking, man, I don't know if that's me. You are surrounded by people who would love to walk you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will give up our lunch today. We'll meet you for coffee. We'll come to your house. You can come to our house. There are tons of people in this room who want you to understand this gift of salvation that Jesus has purchased for you so you can have his joy, so you can have his life. So please do not leave here without talking to someone sitting around you about how you can know Jesus Christ in this way. Father, thank you that you have done everything necessary through your son Jesus for us to have all, all you have created us to enjoy and to inherit all you've created us to be as your people. It's overwhelming. Even though we're amazingly sinful, you have purchased an amazing salvation that completely transforms us from the inside out. We need to hear it constantly. Our city needs to hear it constantly as as, as we chase idols that lead us away from treasuring you, as we embrace brokenness and sin that lead us away from enjoying all you have for us, thank you for reminding us again there is a way back through your son Jesus. And I pray specifically for anyone who may be gathered here, who maybe is listening uh, online, who doesn't know Jesus in this way, that you would open their eyes see, open their ears to hear, open their heart to receive this incredible good news of Jesus Christ and give them life as they repent and believe in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.